Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, forward limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to History Tea Time. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Royal and Noble Serial Killers Female Today, about 85% of serial killers are male. On the rare occasions when a woman commits murder, it is far more shocking to society. But history reveals a handful of femme fatales who took the lives of others to gain power or even for their own sadistic pleasure. Royal and noble women were particularly well-positioned to indulge their evil impulses. Wealth and power gave them nearly limitless freedom to prey on peasants, who in turn had little means of seeking justice. Today, we'll investigate the cases of five female aristocratic serial murderers from history and examine why it seems that there were actually more female noble serial killers than male. Anula, Queen of Anuradhapura, 44 BCE. Anula was born in the kingdom of Anuradhapura, modern-day Sri Lanka, during a tumultuous time. She was wed to King Koranga, who overthrew King Muhakula to claim the throne. His first act as ruler was to destroy 18 Buddhist temples, which had refused to shelter him during his time as an outlaw. Kuranga reigned for 12 years and was seen as a great evildoer. Anula fell in love with a palace guard named Shiva. She had grown weary of her cruel husband, so she invited him to a banquet, overflowing with his favorite foods and brimming with poison. Next in line to the throne was the son of the old king, Mahakula. His name was Kuda Tissa. As Kuda means little, he was likely a child. He was married to Dowager Queen Anula, who may have been his regent. Tissa lasted three years before Anula slipped toxins in his food as well. The queen now had the power to make her lover, the former guard Shiva, the new king. But he didn't properly appreciate what she had done for him. So, in with the poison and out with Shiva. Queen Anula had now established her M.O. She would begin an affair with a common man, off her current husband, and elevate her new lover to the throne. But before long, the new king would stop taking orders from Anula and start pressing his own royal power, enter a new lover, and exit a dead king. She seduced, crowned, and murdered 
a carpenter named Fatuka, a wood carrier called Darubathika, and a Brahmin named Nilaya. Anula was the power behind the throne for five years, but she grew weary of trying to rule through a man. After murdering Nilaya, she simply claimed the throne for herself. She was the first queen regnant of Sri Lanka and the first female head of state in all of Asia, but the powers that be could not allow a woman to remain in power. King Mahakuli's second son, Kutakanhad, had fled Anula's wrath years earlier. He raised an army and overthrew the queen after a reign of only four months. The new king put the bloodlusty queen to death, either by burning her alive on a funeral pyre or by locking her in the palace in which she had committed her heinous acts and then setting the building on fire. While a few sources corroborate Queen Anula's reign, only one source, the Mahavamsa, mentions her habit of husband murdering. It is therefore possible that these accusations were fabricated in order to create a morality tale of why women should not be allowed to rule. Elizabeth Bathory, 1560-1614 Irzebet was the daughter of a powerful Hungarian baron. Her uncle, Stephen Bathory, was king of Poland, Grand Duke of Lithuania, and Prince of Transylvania. Elizabeth's parents were first cousins. As such, she had a number of health problems, which were likely the result of inbreeding. From childhood, she suffered seizures caused by epilepsy. Primitive medicine at the time called for sufferers to rub the blood of non-sufferers on their lips. She was well-educated and fluent in Latin, German, Hungarian, and Greek. At 13, Elizabeth had a romance with a peasant boy, which resulted in her giving birth to a child. The baby was given to a peasant woman to be raised. Elizabeth's paramour was castrated and fed to a pack of wild dogs. At 14, she was married to 18-year-old Ferenc Najdoshti. During their lavish three-day wedding, Ferenc presented Elizabeth with Cheta Castle. The couple had five known children. Ferenc was appointed chief commander of the Hungarian troops in the war against the Ottoman Empire. His brutality terrified his enemies and shocked his comrades. He earned the nickname the Black Knight of Hungary. When Elizabeth and Ferenc had time together, they bonded over their shared love of violence. Ferenc introduced his bride to innovative methods of inflicting pain on servant girls, including rolling up pieces of oiled paper, placing them in between the toes, and setting them on fire. He also reportedly gifted her a clawed glove to scratch up the faces of disobedient girls. When Elizabeth was 41, she took into her employ a mysterious woman named Anna Dorvulia, who was rumored to be a witch. Anna's influence pushed Elizabeth from mere torture to murder. Families who came looking for their missing daughters were turned away by the mighty Bathory family. 
A priest concerned after being called to the castle so often to perform funeral rites for girls he was told had died of cholera complained to the countess. He said that one only needed to exhume the bodies to see the marks of how the girls had truly died. Elizabeth grew enraged at the priest for daring to speak against her. Forens died of illness at 48, leaving 44-year-old Elizabeth an extremely wealthy widow. Her hobby of torture and murder soon morphed into a full-time occupation. She added four more sycophantic accomplices who, in addition to Anna, helped her torture the girls and dispose of their bodies. Elizabeth devised elaborate punishments tailored for specific misdemeanors. If a servant missed a stitch in her sewing, she would be stabbed with long needles. If she dared to remove a needle, her fingers would be cut off. One servant who delivered food she was unsatisfied with had a chunk bitten out of her face. The countess built a torture chamber and filled it with instruments to inflict gruesome pain. Bodies were piling up and her accomplices were running out of places to dig graves. Elizabeth's debts also began to mount. In order to raise revenue and invite a better class of victim, she opened her castle up as a finishing school for the daughters of the landed gentry. But while peasants had little recourse to speak against the powerful countess, once the daughters of the wealthy began dying of cholera at an alarming rate, their parents came knocking. Ancheta Castle was finally investigated. Those who had escaped alive told of seeing walls drenched in blood, hearing screams, and seeing the ever-growing makeshift cemetery. The total death count is estimated to be between 80 and 650 people. Despite the mountain of evidence, the countess was treated with reverence. The investigator and the emperor came to dine with her, but they left abruptly when the cake she served tasted suspicious. Before arresting her, armed guards hid outside the castle gates. They witnessed Elizabeth and one of her accomplices performing an incantation to protect themselves and cause the death of the investigator. Upon entering the castle, they discovered two girls, one dying and one already dead, and Elizabeth and her team in the midst of torture. Elizabeth was arrested, though she insisted on her own innocence and blamed everything on her servants. They were found guilty and their fingers were pulled out with iron pincers. They were executed and their bodies burned. But Elizabeth's family wanted to avoid the embarrassment of a public trial and having her lands confiscated by the crown. So instead, she was locked up in her own castle, in a dungeon cell which had once been the scene of her ghastly murders. She died in the cell at the age of 54. Her body was buried in the local churchyard, but outraged villagers dug her up and supposedly delivered her to the Bathory family crypt. 
However, when the crypt was opened in 1995, her corpse was nowhere to be found. Elizabeth Bathory earned the names the Blood Countess and Countess Dracula and has been greatly mythologized. One of the most enduring myths is that she bathed in the blood of her virgin victims in an attempt to remain young and beautiful. However, there is no evidence of blood baths. Victims who manage to escape her grasps only recount blood covering the walls and floors, which they were forced to mop up. Catalina de los Rios y Lesberger, La Quintrala 1604-1665 Catalina was the daughter of a Spanish conquistador and an early settler in the colony of Santiago, Chile. She grew up on a fruit plantation. At 18, she poisoned her father with a chicken dinner, but escaped conviction and inherited his land and wealth. At 22, the beautiful Catalina was married off by her grandmother to 42-year-old Alfonso Campofrio, member of the noble house of Barcelona and the new mayor of Santiago. Catalina soon began to take lovers. She invited one man to her home and, mid-embrace, stabbed him to death. She blamed the crime on an enslaved person who was executed. She discovered another lover was bragging about sleeping with her, so she beat and stabbed him. She severed the left ear of a third lover and murdered a fourth in front of another gentleman. Her husband was aware of her nefarious activities, but turned a blind eye. Catalina hated the city and spent most of her time on her plantation, where she was free to follow her sadistic whims. She enjoyed whipping the enslaved people she owned with branches from the Quintral plant, whose bright red flowers matched her hair. Thus, she earned the nickname La Quintrala. She murdered one enslaved man and kept his rotting corpse on display for two weeks. The enslaved people escaped in mass and headed for the mountains, but Catalina called on local authorities, whom she regularly bribed, to bring them back. Catalina oversaw punishments of the runaways. Her victim count surpassed 40 people. So many complaints were raised against her that authorities finally began to investigate her. She was arrested and put on trial. Despite ample evidence, her powerful family stepped in and she was acquitted. She walked free, but her reputation was tarnished beyond repair. She died alone at age 61. She was given a grand funeral and prayers were said for her soul. La Quintrala remains a malevolent figure in Chilean culture. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. 
no purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Marie Madeleine Dubray, Marquise de Branvilliers. 1630 to 1676. Marie Madeleine was born into a wealthy French family. Her father held a number of positions at the court of Louis XIII, and her mother's brother was a founder of the settlement, which would one day be Montreal, Canada. She was the eldest of five children in a family with dark secrets. Marie Madeleine admitted that she had been molested from the age of seven. As a woman, Marie Madeleine stood to inherit nothing of her family's wealth. Instead, a substantial dowry was paid to her husband, Antoine Goubelon, the Marquis de Branvilliers. The couple had three children, but their union was unhappy. Antoine was a gambler, and Marie Madeleine had four more children with her lovers. She was especially close to army officer Godin de Saint-Croix. When she learned that her husband was gambling away both of their fortunes, she began legal proceedings to protect her own money. Her father was horrified that Marie Madeleine's actions would damage his own career. So he had her lover Goudin arrested and thrown in the Bastille. While in prison, Goudin learned a great deal about the art of poison making. When he was released, he taught what he knew to Marie Madeleine, who began to solidify fantasies of revenge. The Marquise sent a servant to infiltrate her father's household and administer small doses of poison to him. As he grew ill, he called his darling daughter to care for him. This made it all the easier for her to dose him with Glazer's recipe, an undetectable toxin. He died with his daughter at his bedside, and his autopsy ruled natural causes exacerbated by gout. Marie Madeleine inherited a large legacy, which she burned through quickly. Next, she turned on her two unmarried brothers, who were also living at the family home, and had inherited even more of the fortune. Antoine grew suspicious when his drink had a metallic taste, but he fell ill after eating a pie and never recovered. The second brother died soon after. Both of their autopsies recorded suspicious discoloration of the intestines, but ruled that the brothers in their mid-30s had died of malignant humor. 
Marie Madeleine nearly got away with her crimes. But two years later, her lover, Goudon, died, either by illness or accidental exposure to his own experiments. The many incriminating letters Marie Madeleine had sent him fell into the hands of the authorities. She fled the country and evaded capture for four years, but eventually she was arrested in Belgium and brought back to France. The murder trial was the talk of Paris. Marie Madeleine feigned ignorance of the charges, but the evidence against her was substantial. She was found guilty and sentenced to torture and execution. She was subjected to the water cure, where the subject was made to drink copious amounts of water through a funnel, resulting in agonizing gastric distension and water intoxication. Next, she was dressed in a white slip and was paraded barefoot to Notre Dame Cathedral, where, before a massive crowd, she begged forgiveness at the altar. She was taken to Place de Grève, where the executioner shaved her head and then removed it entirely with a sword. Her corpse was burned and her ashes scattered. French society was shocked that such a high-born lady could be guilty of such nefarious deeds. Aristocrats all the way up to King Louis XIV grew suspicious that they too would be poisoned by their nearest and dearest. The result was a witch hunt known as the Affair of the Poisons. Hundreds of people mostly women, were arrested and accused of murdering with poison and, of course, witchcraft. Among the accused was a countess, a duchess, and the king's own mistress, Madame de Montespan, who was said to be using aphrodisiacs to keep his majesty's attention. 36 people were found guilty and executed, some with strong evidence, some without though most of the wealthy were acquitted. While Marie-Madeleine d'Aubray's crimes caused hysteria among the upper class, it was not until after her ashes settled that a strange number of suspicious deaths of poor people around her were remembered. It is now believed that before she poisoned her father, she tested her concoctions on sick patients at the hospital Hotel Dieu. Her crimes went unnoticed because it was expected of upper-class ladies to visit the sick and dying, and because Paris hospitals for the poor were overrun, disorganized, and far more concerned with saving souls than providing medical care. Marie-Madeleine also tested her toxins on some of her own servants. Her total death count is believed to exceed 50. Daria Nikolaevna Soltikova, 1730-1801 Daria was the daughter of two wealthy noble families in Moscow. In her late teens, she wed Gleb Soltikov, also a powerful noble. They had two sons together before Gleb died and left Daria, a wealthy widow, at 26, with a large estate and thousands of serfs. Entering middle age and feeling lonely, she began an affair with a handsome younger man named Nicolay, but she soon discovered that he had secretly married a young woman. 
Daria flew into a rage and attacked Nicolet and his bride. They escaped and ran for their lives, eventually fleeing Moscow. With the objects of her fury out of grasp, Daria turned her anger upon those under her control, her serfs. At first, her assaults were ignored, as it was common for nobles to abuse their servants. Daria hurled logs at young women who failed to clean to her satisfaction. But soon, her sadism grew. She saw all young women as her rivals. She beat them, broke their bones, burned them with boiling water, and left them naked in the freezing forest. She tortured many of her victims to death. Only three known victims were men. She preferred to force them to watch as she tortured their wives, mothers, and daughters. A handful of serfs complained to the authorities, but they were severely punished for daring to speak against a noble lady. Eventually, two serfs, whose wives had been murdered, escaped the estate. They made it to St. Petersburg and managed to get an audience with Empress Catherine the Great. Catherine was in the process of reforming Russia. She was a strong believer in law and order and in the rights of serfs. She decided to put a stop to the unhinged aristocrat. Daria was arrested and held prisoner for six years while the case was thoroughly investigated. At first, serfs were understandably reluctant to speak with authorities, but witnesses eventually came forward and estate records were swept. It was found that Daria had killed about 138 people over seven years. When confronted with the evidence against her, she remained haughtily unrepentant, insisting that she was above the law and must be set free. She would not even confess her crimes to a priest. The Empress was unsure how to punish Daria as the death penalty had recently been abolished. Daria was chained to a platform in Red Square for an hour with a sign around her neck reading, This woman has tortured and murdered. Next, she was locked up in a windowless cell in the dungeon of a monastery. For 11 years, she saw no other humans but the nun who delivered her food, plus a single candle by which she could eat. Later, the notorious murderer was moved to a cell with a window through which curious passers-by could gawk at her. By this time, she had gone completely insane and would often curse and spit at curious spectators. After 33 years of incarceration, Daria Saltikova died in her cell in 1801 at the age of 71. She was buried in her family's crypt. Why so many female serial killers? I was surprised to learn that of the nine historic royal and noble serial killers that we know about, five were female. At 55%, that is shockingly high. Today, it is estimated that only about 15% of serial killers are female. Were aristocratic women of the past far more mentally unstable and violent than their male counterparts? Let's explore a few reasons why it may appear that there were more female serial killers in history. 
women kill for different reasons. Modern psychologists note that while male killers often murder for sex and pleasure, females usually murder for power and profit. This MO fits perfectly with Queen Anula, Marquise Marie Madeleine, and even Catalina de los Rios's first murder was of her father for financial gain. It's easy to see why the environment of historic nobility might have bred a few female serial killers. Noble women were raised with the same sense of entitlement and arrogance as their brothers. But rather than being handed nearly unlimited and unquestioned power, they were always second-class citizens, beholden to their fathers and husbands. They had proximity to extreme power and wealth, but could rarely claim it for themselves. It's comprehensible that this frustrating dynamic drove certain women to kill. Even more historic male serial killers might have gotten away with it. In last week's episode, I discussed the four male noble and royal serial killers that we know about. Prince Liu Pingli of ancient China, Hemorite King Du Shanitar, Gilles de Rey of France, and Crown Prince Sado from Korea, all of whom preyed on vulnerable lower-class people and were only brought to justice because they got on the wrong side of other nobles. Therefore, it is possible that there were many other powerful sadists who were more careful not to affront the nobility and carried on terrorizing peasants with impunity. But when women murder, it is perceived as far more shocking, unnatural, and associated with witchcraft. So, on the rare occasions when women killed, they were more likely to be prosecuted and their crimes recorded in the bloody pages of history. Many historic male serial killers were labeled as judges, warriors, or conquerors. The past was often an extremely violent place, where human life was given little value. Wars were constant and punishment brutal. For men bent on violence, there was a plethora of opportunity for them to inflict brutality on others in ways that were socially acceptable and even celebrated. Consider characters like Vlad III Dracula, who took pleasure in impaling hundreds of Turkish enemies and even his own people for a variety of infractions. He could easily be counted as a serial killer, but is considered a national hero by some for defending Romania. Or Tomas de Torquemada, Grand Inquisitor, who oversaw the murders of 2,000 people and the torture of thousands more during the Spanish Inquisition. Or the countless famous warrior kings and conquerors, who were also undoubtedly all murderers. All in all, there have been far more violent, murderous men in history than women. Even with a crime as heinous as taking another human life, men and women have been judged differently. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. I'll be putting out new podcast episodes each Tuesday, revisiting and revamping my most popular YouTube videos, and adding even more fascinating information for your listening pleasure. 
Want some visuals with your history? Then check out my YouTube channel, also called History Tea Time with Lindsay Holiday, where you can find hundreds of videos about queens of the world, royal history, women's medical history, and more. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.